Today's scripture passage comes to us from Luke 17, 1 through 6. This is the passage right before um, the story of the lepers that we heard last week. So listen for the word. Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for sin are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to sin. Be on your guard. If a sibling sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So often when we hear Jesus' words of forgiveness, I think we expect to hear about people who have shown extraordinary um, examples of forgiveness an oppressed person saving their oppressor, a person of color giving shelter to a devout racist, a father uh, forgiving the person who killed his child. And all of those stories are amazing. And I think sometimes they leave us in awe and wondering if we could ever dole out such forgiveness, if we could hold up to the task. But I don't think that that's what this passage is about today. It may encompass that, but I think that it's more about the everyday, the mundane, the situations we encounter on a near daily basis. I think it's about the day-to-day workings of a community and how we might live together, work together, fight together, disagree together, and celebrate together. I think that this passage is more about the we than the I. It's about community. And in this passage, we're offered comfort, and we're also offered responsibility. To not cause others to sin, to not drag others down with us when we inevitably do, to forgive, to be forgiven, and to ask for forgiveness, to call out others, but also to be receptive when we ourselves are called out. But I wonder about those times when it feels like we don't have enough faith when faith and living out faith just seems like too tall of an order. I think there are periods of transition in our lives in which we might feel misunderstood or question our place in the communities we inhabit, feel like we've been pushed into unknown territory, or maybe we're unsure of when we might return to any sense of normalcy. Perhaps assumptions we made have been proven wrong Trust has been betrayed, we feel we've been forgotten, the future is uncertain, our sense of belonging is questioned, or things just feel like they're falling apart. The good news is that God assures us that we are known and loved in the midst of all of those situations. But it's in the midst of change that I think love and forgiveness are all the more difficult to give and receive. It's in those places that it is all the more valuable, though. It's on the margins that we are more prone to giving in to our fear and our weakness and our anxiety. It's in those times that we as human beings do terrible things to each other. 
We make others feel unknown, misunderstood, underappreciated, or unworthy of reconciliation. And it seems like particularly in those moments, we also begin naming all of the things that we need in order to do the things that God wants us to do. All the conditions we think need to be in order for everything to fall into place. I just need more time, more money, more peace, more quiet, more faith. And these may be excuses, or they may indeed be what we think we need to have first before we can take on a big task. We're just not sure what it takes. We're not sure we measure up. And so we blame the conditions. And I suspect the disciples weren't necessarily using little faith as an excuse. But instead, I think they were showing their own lack of confidence in themselves, their own anxieties. What Jesus knows them to be capable of is far greater than they themselves think they're capable of. And for goodness sake, they're on their way to Jerusalem. If ever there was a time for them to think they didn't have enough faith for what lay ahead, I think that this is a pretty understandable time. David Lowe's writes, Truth be told, I can sympathize with the disciples. There are times I wonder how I'm going to keep up, follow through with various commitments, do all that I've said I would do, and make sure that I don't fall short of the expectations of those around me. Maybe that's a little like they felt. But at just that time, I think, it's not that I need more faith or time or energy, although I often think so. No, what I really need is to stop thinking and just do it. Stop counting the costs and just spend what I've got. Stop worrying about it all and just trust. Jesus assures this anxious crew that they have enough faith. Just a few chapters prior, he compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, and now he's comparing the faith of the disciples to a mustard seed. I'd say that's a pretty good vote of confidence. He's assuring them that just because they can't quantify the faith that they have doesn't mean that they don't have enough. Faith like the kingdom of God, it, it can't be measured in the same ways that we measure other things in our lives. It's not that they need more faith. It's that they need to embody the faith they already have. Their faith needs to match up with their actions. They need to embody that faith. Because it's, it's more of a verb than a possession to be quantified. And rest assured, we're human. We're not expected to always get it right. Screwing things up is inevitable. But regardless of how hard we try, we will mess up, we will hurt others, we will act in ways that are not of God. But in community, in beloved community, we have to be willing to hear others, willing to apologize and ask for forgiveness when we screw up, and listen, really, really listen when someone tells us we've done something that hurts them or hurts the community. And this command for forgiveness isn't an excuse, another way to let us off the hook, to have permission to sin because we know we'll be forgiven, or something to hold over the head of those that we've wronged. 
Certainly this text and ones like it have been used in dangerous ways to excuse abusers and to support staying in relationships in which a person's value of a child of God is not recognized. But that's not what this is. This is about living in ways that help others to experience the love of God and to recognize it in their midst. Jesus is calling for accountability from all parties. And it requires hard work. Jesus is challenging his followers to seek out the parts of themselves that are sometimes painful to find, to admit their failures, and to reconcile their actions to the faith that they profess. And such work is really necessary in beloved community. I've recently been reading a book by clinical psychologist Harriet Lerner. Um, it's called, Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. And she argues that I'm sorry are the two most powerful words in the English language. That a good apology is a gift to a relationship. And throughout her novel, she brings up various stories from her own clients. But towards the end, she tells one of her own stories of forgiveness. And I think it, it, it's quite relatable. She tells a story of one of her close friends, Sheila, who was just about to release her first book. Um, now the writer, she lives in Kansas, so going to New York, especially at a very difficult time when plane tickets were expensive, was quite the task. But she wanted to be there for her friend Sheila. She wanted to show up for the big moments. So she gets there, she shows up to the party, and she finds that she only knows two people there. The host, Sheila, and an editor who she has worked for before. Her name's Blanche. And so the two post up kind of in the corner of the party and they're so deep in conversation that they kind of begin to forget about everything that's going on around them. And they find that they've been, they've been talking to each other and just catching up for almost two hours. And they've realized that everyone from the party has kind of shifted into another room and they're giving toasts and, and celebrating Sheila and her amazing accomplishment. And so they move into, they try to sneak in the back, hopefully no one will notice that they were a little bit late. And so they join for the ritual, everyone goes home, and Harriet thinks that everything's great. This was a good trip, I'm glad I came, glad I showed up for my friend. And that evening she gets a call from Sheila, and she thinks that Sheila's gonna say, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, out of your busy schedule to come and be with me and to celebrate with me. But that's not what happens. Sheila is mad. And not just a little mad, she's really mad. And she says, how, how could you possibly behave so reprehensibly? And Harriet's a little taken aback, confused. She thought this was great. She thought the party was fabulous. She was glad she made the trip. And Sheila goes on to explain, she says, how could, you, how could you have sat with that person for the entire party, making no effort to meet any of my friends? There are people that are fans of your work and you didn't even try to meet them. You were so rude. And you missed half the, half of the, half the speeches, half the cheers. Aren't you sorry for that? Don't you want to apologize? Sheila says that she, she had disappointed her and her friends and embarrassed her. And here Harriet is on the other end of the phone, just completely in shock and blindsided, feeling like they were at two different events. 
She had made this expensive trip at a very inconvenient time to be at this party, and now that she was being told that she ruined it. And Harriet says she, she felt like Sheila's criticisms were a little exaggerated and unfair. And so in a defensive mode, she said, I'm sorry, but, but why in the world didn't you pull me aside and tell me? I had no idea that I was ruining this for you. And Sheila shoots back, that wasn't my responsibility. And then Harriet says, I'm not saying it was your responsibility, but I'm just saying that of course I would have went, walked around if you wanted me to, I had no idea. And Sheila says, it's not my job to supervise you. You're an adult. And Sheila was angry. She was even angrier than she was before. And then Harriet was really upset now too. And she didn't understand how Sheila couldn't see that they had both contributed to the problem. It wasn't as one-sided as it was being made out to be. And so, and, and Harriet says, of course I would have gone around. I would have, I would have introduced myself to all of her friends. I would have, would have been the life of the party, but I had no idea. And she says it would have been easy to think of myself as the victim in this moment, to shut off communication, to leave it there. And the two of them stewed in their separate cities for a few days. And Harriet, who does work about solving issues between friends and family, she realized that she needed to make the first move. Even though it was hard, even though she didn't think she had done anything wrong, Sheila had been silently seething for so much of the party, and it was clear that this had hurt her. And even though she was upset, she realized that the faux apology that she had given, I'm sorry you were upset, did more harm than good and could possibly really damage their friendship. And I think we've all been in situations like that where simply a misunderstanding can do such, uh, such harm. The thing was, Sheila wanted to hear the criticisms and it wasn't the time to criticize her back. And it was, didn't matter whether or not Harriet saw these things as valid or understandable. At the end of the day, it was, they were her feelings. And she wanted them to be heard. And so at the very least, Harriet realized she could listen. That we could all do a little bit more listening. And so she said, I, I share responsibility and I'm sorry, and I care for you, and I care for our friendship, and I recognize that you were hurt, and I'm so sorry that I hurt you. And she says that it's not that we're always expected to give in to unreasonable demands when it takes too much of ourselves, nor is she suggesting that we apologize for things we're not responsible for. But she suggests that we do take responsibility for those things that we can. She says that I'm sorry are, are powerful words because they're a gift to a relationship. They show that the people in the relationship can feel secure in the knowledge that if they behave badly, even fight terribly, that they can repair the disconnection 
We strengthen our relationships when others know we're capable of reflecting on our own behavior and that we'll listen to their feelings and do our best to set things right. Indeed, we find comfort in being known and loved. But it's not the sole purpose of our assurance from God. George H. Martin writes, our call to serve the God who will shadow us is to speak a word of truth in daily life. We're asked to respect the dignity of every human being, letting the face of Christ emerge in love of neighbor. In such community, the pain is shared. We can come as we are. We're able to recognize our past failures and fears without judgment. Our sense of purpose is renewed and celebrations are sweeter because they're shared. In community, we come to the table not because of our piety, but because we recognize our own brokenness. And in sharing the joyful feasts together, we recognize just how much we need God and just how much we need one another. Professor Caroline Lewis writes, maybe hidden in that immeasurability of faith is the promise of this text. And maybe the mixed response of Jesus points to this very truth, that faith is God, in God works something like God's love for us, immeasurable, inestimable, and incalculable. God doesn't measure our faith any more than God can, than we can measure God's love for us. And so, because this is about a communal faith, about living with our eyes on Jesus, I ask what we're gonna do about that. Will we promote community? Will we help abundance spring forth in places of scarcity? Will we work toward change even when complaining is so much easier? Will we stand in the way of greed that profits from the desperation of others? Will we let go of our need to be right? Will we apologize when we fall short? Will we listen to the words of people we've hurt? Will we let go of a grudge? Will we let go of our pride? Will we remind others that they are known and loved by God? And will we remind others of grace when they feel they don't have enough? The beauty of this passage is that it isn't accompanied by a timeline. The disciples don't keep walking toward Jerusalem with, with all of the answers to all of their questions. They don't suddenly feel adequate. They do not suddenly live a perfectly faithful life. Certainly there's urgency in this passage, but these words aren't to be fulfilled in a momentary response but instead with the entirety of our lives. The seeds of faith are in you. It is enough. You are enough. How will you live that out? To God be the glory. Amen. Good friends, on this particular day, we gather with Christians all over the world, not because we are the same, but because we are united in God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ. There is plenty of brokenness and strife and war and famine and bullying and greed and hurricanes in this world. 
And yet here in this moment, we are gathered at this table doing what Jesus did and what he asked his disciples to do so long ago. We are invited here to share a meal at this table. Whether you participate in this celebration regularly, whether you have never been at a feast like this, or whether indeed you have given up on God, you're still invited to this feast. At this table, you see, it is neither your virtue or your defects that are important. It is neither our piety or our doubts. It is neither our goodness nor our mistakes that are important. Instead, what is most important in this invitation is that you take what Jesus is offering you, and it's a costly gift. You are known. You are loved. You do belong here at this table. We are guests here at this table, and the feast is grace and love and forgiveness. Let us pray. O oh God of peace, we come in prayer seeking your promise, a peace that surpasses all understanding. When we look at the world, we see war and division, heartache and hopelessness, violence and vitriol. We lament with the world's suffering, knowing that you do weep with us. This day we pray for those traumatized by the latest storm, Ian, and ask for your help in our work to repair this glorious earth. Transform our tears into signs of hope with the gift of water resting on tear-soaked cheeks, falling in fresh rains that are not too plenty, blessing us in baptismal fonts. Pour forth your peace into a dry and weary world. We pray for those who are lost and lonely, for those who are suffering, sick, and scared, for the fragile and forgotten, for children and the aged who are caught in conflict, for those who are on the margins and yet seek to meet you. Help us to trust that your mercies are new every morning from the smallest muster seed of faith. Stir in us the will to be part of your transformation in the world. O God of justice, we come in prayer seeking your vision for a more merciful world filled with joy. Grant us eyes to see new possibilities for restoration and relationship. Embolden us not only to see but to act. Empower us to write the vision, a world where systems and structures are built to serve the least of these, a world where oppression is replaced by reconciliation and repair, a world where poverty is transformed into plenty. In our actions and in our prayers, help us to be your people. Through your spirit of power and love, empower us to serve the least of these who are our siblings the sick and the imprisoned, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the lonely. In our love of neighbor, open our eyes to see you among us. God of joy, we come to you at this table. As the rain pours down from heavens and waters the earth, so may your word spring forth as a source of justice and joy. As the mountains and hills burst in song, may we return to praise and glorify you. As all creation bears witness to your goodness, May we bear witness to the image of God, each one of us, in your image, in one another, that you are called very good. For all of these things we pray through Christ our risen Lord, who taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. Friends, Jesus gathered his disciples at a table, maybe like this, to share a meal with them on the night of his arrest. And when he did, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And he filled the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed with my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Every time you drink of this cup, you do so in remembrance of me. Friends, this is the table of the Lord for the people of the Lord. All things are ready. And whenever you eat from this table, remember that you do that in remembrance of Jesus Christ. All things are ready.
have all been served. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have fed us with the bread of life and the drink of the new covenant. As we answer your call of service, let this food and drink sustain us through our earthly pilgrimage into your diverse and wondrous world. And as we journey into the, to the place where hunger and thirst will be no more, let us boldly proclaim the promise of resurrection. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. And now in gratitude, let us present our tithes and our offerings back to God.
Now we pray together in dedication. Blessed are you, God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have gifts to share. Accept and use our offerings for your glory and for the service of your world. Amen. We will close worship with hymn number 543. into this world, letting the light of Christ shine through you, allowing for, for Christ to be in the eyes of all who see you, Christ to be in the ears of all that hear your voice, and Christ in the hearts of all who know you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.